No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. The last couple of summers, we've been thrilled to bring No, You Tell It to the low residency MFA and creative writing program at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Give a listen to last year's show, aptly themed No Regrets. Since this trio of fantastic FDU alums traded their true life tales at the summer residency's closing bagel breakfast, which falls the morning after the program's annual graduation dinner and dance party. Before Heather performs Letty's story, I like to let the room hear a little bit about the, about the author before their story is performed. So I create little fun, I don't know, talk show type questions. Leticia, I got to hear you speak yesterday about Petit Hound Press, and you're such a wonderful poet and artist, and I was just curious, how is this process, creating a story for this show, different than what you might have done in the past when creating artistic work? Um, it's a new experience for me because um, it's nonfiction, which I, I normally don't write. So um, when you reached out, um, Heather was on board, and Taz was on board, and I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. And then a week later, I was like, what am I thinking? And I was like, I can't do it. Yeah, she actually wrote me quit. <laughs> yeah, I was like, no, no, I'm sorry. But then, and I was like, no, no, you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, there's no quitting. So um, it's, a really, it's been really great um, because I've actually surprisingly really enjoyed writing nonfiction, which I didn't, um, I didn't even know, you know, I could do. Um, I started out writing stanzas for the project, and I was like, oh, then I'll just organize them, but um, yeah, it's been really great. Great. Speaking off, no, you tell it, no regrets. We're going to hear my first tattoo, written by Letty and performed by Heather Knight. <laughs> I tell my friend, Nina, that I'll be back before the last bell. I rush down the hallway, cut through the gym, and exit the back door. I walk to the bus stop on Belleville Avenue and take the 13 bus to Newark, then head to Penn Station and take the North train to Clifton. In roughly two hours, I will have a permanent black and blue butterfly on my chest. My heart beats fast as I walk toward the shop. I light a cigarette and focus on the exhale. It's 1990. I'm 14 years old. I have known Nina since the seventh grade. She moved from Argentina the same year I left Union City and appeared at homeroom wearing a Doors t-shirt and combat boots. We were instant friends. On Friday nights, we transcribed lyrics under a cloud of cigarette smoke in the basement as Jim Morrison's poetry fills the pages of our journals. On my way back to school, my skin buzzes, my chest is on fire, and my limbs are shaky. On the train, I read a library book about butterflies and metamorphosis. I am convinced that the butterfly spirit has entered my body through the needle of a tattoo gun. I have journeyed into a new state of being. I possess the ability to transform. Perhaps I'm even capable of flight. I arrive back at school and meet Nina at her locker. I flash a smile in my newly decorated chest. She runs an uncertain finger over my bloody skin and does not smile. My father was once a political prisoner in Cuba. He later works nights at an electrical company 
Patterson. On the weekends, the four of us, my father, my brother, my mother, my sister, and I, packing the yellow dots in and roam the streets looking for curbside furniture or picnic under the George Washington Bridge if it's warm enough. My father has a Minolta camera that my mother gifted him for his last birthday. He uses it to take black and white pictures of my mother as she sits cross-legged on a park bench, stands over the kitchen sink of our Union City apartment, combs her hair near their bedroom window, and smiles softly, only for him. For my father, I learned how to roller skate, how to ride a bike, how to climb cliffs, how to understand bird calls, and how to yank my loose teeth out gently with a string. When I am six years old, we visit a local pool hall. Old men drink beer and pretend to aim at cue, ball, cue balls while kids my age run in circles around the tables. I am not interested in running that day. Instead, I sit at the edge of the bar, admiring the decorated arms of an ancient man. This is long before full sleeves are common, and I am mesmerized by the patterns. They seem as much a part of the man as his eyes or his nose. I am unable to formulate exactly how, but on some intuitive level, I already know that one day my arms will look like his. Eventually, I will learn the word tattoo. I will research ancient Nubian and Egyptian markings to find that the art dates back even further to the fourth millennium BC. I will come to believe that some people are born with tattoos and that life experience eventually delivers these to the surface of our skin. I will fantasize about patterns emerging on my body and develop superstitions about what might trigger their manifestations. My own culture, deeply steeped in folklore, will become the basis for my mythology. This will make sense, like the azabaches that all Cuban children wear to ward off the evil eye, or the glass of water under the bed used to guide the lost spirits of our ancestors toward the afterlife. I will begin to keep a bucket on the fire escape that fills with rainwater when it storms and use it to bathe in an attempt to summon my markings. Of course, eventually I will come to understand that the only required ritual does not involve rainwater or invocation, but a simple tattoo gun and a needle. Shortly after my ninth birthday, two bullets will end my father's life. I will not worry about his subsequent journey as much as I will obsess about his ability to connect with the past. I will light candles and burn drawings. I will consult the tarot, dream dictionaries, astrology charts, and the I Ching. I will send smoke signals. I will carve directions on my own skin. Two weeks after my chest tattoo emerges, I sit on my bed, lathering lotion. My room is a closet in the basement with no windows. I have chosen it because at this point, I prefer the dark. It's early December and already my mother is anxious about Christmas. She stands in the hallway near the kitchen calling my name. It is Saturday morning and I've somehow managed to avoid breakfast. I walk up the stairs in my white thermal top and sweatpants. I step into the hallway and instantly she glares at my chest. I become self-conscious and wrap my arms around myself. She points and her face becomes distorted. Her eyes widen as if she suddenly acquired x-ray vision. I run to the bathroom and she chases me, screaming something incoherent. I shove her hands back and shut the door. She pounds her fist 
on the other side, and I worry that the door's hollow floor will give way, and her arms will come flailing through. But suddenly, my mother goes quiet. I examine myself in the mirror and discover that my mother has not acquired x-ray vision. A black blur is visible beneath my white thermal. It is almost obvious. I feel stupid for having been so careless. I could have covered my entire torso without having to explain myself, had I been cautious. Now, that explanation seems inevitable. The day my butterfly materializes, Nina and I walk to the abandoned reservoir after school. We sit on a rusted bench, freezing our asses off and discussing symbolism. <laughs> she tells me about the Argentine legend of Peru, which tells the story of a young man whose mother is suffering from a deadly disease. The mother sends her son for medicine, but on his way to the village, the boy hears an accordion and follows its sound. He forgets his purpose and begins dancing with the girl. Later, he learns that while he was dancing, his mother has died. The following morning, he invites the young girl to accompany him back home, but she responds that his house is far away and she will not journey with someone who doesn't care for his own mother. Heartbroken and alone, the young man is transformed into a Peru bird, forever destined to hear black feathers and sing a mournful song. I work part-time in an airbrush shop where I learn how to draw Homie the Clown and Black Bart Simpson. I paid weekly in cash, and I stuffed every dollar into the hole of an owl I made in ceramics. I fill my journal with sketches of disproportionate body shapes and use them to plot future tattoos. A bird on my back, vines on my ankle, a moon on my wrist. I become increasingly obsessed with mapping symbols and creating patterns. To what end? I can't say. Simply that shapes are important. They mean something. These words hurt. These vines have torn you apart. This moon will guide you. These flowers have the power to heal. I tiptoe out of the bathrooms, and my mother is sitting on the couch, her face buried in her hands. She sobs softly into her palms, and the tears drip down her wrists and onto her chest. I don't know what to do. So I walk over to the sink and pour her a glass of water. I've seen my mother angry many times. I've seen her upset, too. And as a little girl, I lay next to her countless nights as she cried herself to sleep. But never before this day had I ever felt her grief so interlaced with my own. I sit beside her and cry. Seeing me in tears, she asks if I regret getting the tattoo. The truth is, I love the butterfly. I love feeling its scaly surface beneath my fingers. I love the way it buzzes on my skin as in fluttering wings. But most of all, I love its permanence. The way it is wholly mine. The way it can never leave me. So I say no, I do not regret the tattoo, but I don't want to be like the Peru. Then I fall silent because I can't find the words to express how every night the butterfly begs to take a bite. I sit under a large awning in the back terrace of my mother's house. It's early December in Miami and we're grilling burgers by the pool in 90 degree heat. The sky is gray and swollen. It feels as if any second the rain will break. 
I just turned 36 and once again commemorated my birthday with a new tattoo. This one's a mermaid on my left thigh. My sister says she looks like a drawing from one of our children's books. I smile and tease her that she's finally right about something. Whatever, she says. I'm always right. My mother flips the last burger, lights a cigarette, and looks at my thumb. I like this one, she says. She looks happy. We talk about the holidays and briefly mention goals for the new year, but mostly discuss food preparation for Noche Buena. My sister points out that as usual, my mom's menu should be enough to feed the entire neighborhood. Remember that year mom found out about your first tattoo and hardly even cooked, she says? That was shit Christmas. <laughs> my mother half smiles and says I nearly gave her a heart attack. My nephew walks out, pulls up a chair, and grabs a burger. What are we talking about, he asks. Just your Tia's first tattoo, my sister says. Oh, cool. So, which one was your first tattoo, Tia, my nephew asks. I think about my first tattoo and realize they've never seen it. I tell my nephew that when I was his age, his mom and I drove 1,300 miles from New Jersey to Miami in a rusty van during a hurricane. Of course, that was a long time ago, I say. Long before you came along, and long before this mermaid, or this moon, or any of these birds were here. I already had the butterfly, but the truth is, it wasn't my first tattoo. For a second, there is silence, a collective observance of our past, and the recognition that we all found our own way to heal. When the rain breaks and almost in unison, my mother bursts out laughing. driving us all with that video of everyone singing I Will Survive and dancing. <laughs> they didn't ask for you that. <laughs> so I was just wondering what other, do you have another like special skill that we don't know about? Is there anything really random that you can brag about in front of this room full of bagel eating people? How much time is it? I do martial arts. So what does that mean exactly? Like visit karate or is that what it's yeah uh, kickboxing taekwondo can we have yeah. a class in that yes yeah. <laughs> early morning I got beat up a lot when I was little and my dad forced me to did you ever use the moves to fight back yeah. and I don't know if I'm supposed to be like advocating <laughs> switching it up we're going to hear now if you want to take your seat Taz Letty's going to read. In Spite of Ourselves, written by Taz. In Spite of Ourselves. I let a hitchhiker drive my car for a few hours while I slept in the back seat. When I met him, standing out in front of a bait and tackle shop in Georgia, holding a guitar case, he seemed like a nice enough guy. He told me he heard John Prine playing from my car when I pulled up. We talked about music for a minute, 
and he mentioned he was on his way to Houston. I told him I'll attend West too. Before I could pull away, he flashed some cash and asked if I could drop him off in Texas. He wasn't too big of a guy. He didn't smell that bad. I told him to hop in the car. Now he's long gone with my bag that has enough drugs inside to get me to California. I wake up under stars and covered in sweat. I'm going through severe opiate withdrawal. I had no idea how long I've been here. I see a sign that says, Roland, Oklahoma City Limits. So that's where I am. Midnight in the middle of nowhere, rolled over in Roland, Oklahoma, roadside. Cars zip by. I wish there was a pedestrian in danger to hop in front of. Mom might accept a heroic suicide. That's how bad this feels. I need to die because I can't sleep and I can't live through this feeling. I fall down on the shoulder next to a patient nail in the road. I wonder what'll happen first. Me gathering the balls to kill myself or the nail destroying a tire. The nail stands on its head mocking me with a look that says, I can do this forever, amigo. <laughs> I get that feeling you get when you're in a push-up contest with someone and they are keeping their pace, banging out rep after rep while your heart is about to quit. Your arms are shaking just to hold you up, let alone give you another push-up. If you've ever not known how you're going to survive the next few hours of your life, thinking and hoping every few breaths will be your last, waiting for your life to flash before your eyes, not because you care to rehash everything, just because that's what happens before you die, and you'd welcome the end. You'd know the, ex that the experience is enough to cause your mind to pick up anger and sail away. I feel this way too often. I get myself into this situation a lot. When addiction is the cause of all your troubles, the worst part about experiencing the worst part of your life over and over again is knowing that this time, it'll be worse. It's kind of like that song that goes, I'll love you more today than yesterday, but not as much as tomorrow. Just replace love you more with hate myself and want to die. I'm here feeling like I'm about to die and very well might because I got high and can't continue to stay high. For to be precise, I can't stay high enough to keep the sweat under my skin, the mind in my head, the soul in my, well, I don't know where my soul is, but I know I can feel it leaving. I couldn't give less of a fuck about the car or my backpack, clothes, food, credit cards, money, driver's license, I want to be even right now, and I'm off Shit's Creek without a paddle. I can't scream for help. I literally can't muster the strength, but I also don't want it because I know help would not bring me more drugs. I want out of what I need to keep me going. Hundreds of miles from someone I know, puke pouring out the side of my mouth, wishing I could be a nail in the road instead of myself. I look across the street, and notice what looks like a backpack in the grass. I can't believe it. This John Prine enthusiast stole everything except what I wanted to keep. I get excited. If he was here right now, I'd hug him before I'd take a swing and probably miss. I run across the street and lift the backpack out of the grass. Only it's not a backpack, it's a trash bag. Whatever spirit I have left flies out of my body. I stare at the dirt and asphalt, dejected. I start walking back across the road. A car zooms by and almost hits me. I stand in the road for a second, head still down. I hear laughing, so I look up. Nail staring at me, saying, look both ways, dumbass. I think about the past, specifically grade school. That's the last time I was totally happy. 
before life experience turned me inside out. I remember the New Testament story of Lazarus coming back from the dead by the will of Jesus. I went to Catholic school and they taught us the Bible was not meant to be taken literally, even the Gospels. At least some of the more enlightened teachers did. I wonder how this story came about, what inspired it. If Lazarus did exist, what exactly did Jesus do to wake him up? I wonder if Lazarus was so dead that his soul completely left his body. I can no longer stand. The dehydration and vomiting brings me to the ground, my face burning on the hot road. I hear the sprinklers turn on in the field next to me. I decide to try rolling into the field. Maybe I'll be able to get some water on my face, cool off a bit. This will take everything I have. Every time I roll, I hit another rock. I feel them moving around my back. My heart is pumping so fast, I think it might hop out of my throat and onto the asphalt, continue to twitch like dying roadkill. I can feel the sweat drops continue to accumulate under my skin. They pass like kidney stones. My pores feel like sores all over my body. I know that sounds crazy. That sweat can hurt. But sniff a brick of heroin every day for a few months and then lock yourself in your basement. You'll see. Or just remember, like Tommy Boy said, you can get a good look at a table by sticking your head up a bull's ass, but just take the butcher's word for it. <laughs> With every roll closer to the field, I have another wish. Roll. A car to run me over, please. Roll. Maybe a tractor. Roll. Or a lost cow to trample me. Roll. Lightning. Anything to kill me. I'd welcome it. Roll. Are there alligators in Oklahoma? Finally, I make it into the field. I quickly realize I've made a terrible mistake. I am now on the rainforest floor. I feel so small in that field. None of the water makes it to me, but I can feel the humidity. The canopy of whatever is growing in the field will not allow a single drop to land on my face or in my mouth, and now the bugs come. Ants, flies, and mosquitoes begin to pick at me. I am decomposing, but quite sure I'm still alive, unfortunately. They are relentless, driving me insaner. I think I know that's not a word. I bury my face in the cow shit and dirt. I hold my breath and wait. Sweat continues to fire out of me like cannonballs. My mind is gone. Random memories flicker. This is it, I think. I'm going to die with my face in shit. But around the minute and a half mark, I can't stop myself from sucking in whatever oxygen I can find in the soil. I can still hear that fucking nail laughing at me. I don't know what is growing in this field. I don't even know what kind of field I'll die in. If I could just turn my brain completely off and get whatever the fuck is poking me in the back out from under me, then maybe I can sleep through whatever the fuck is my life. I can't take it. I put my hand behind my back to remove the rock from under me. I feel damp material. It's familiar. It's my fucking backpack. This gives me a bit of energy. I roll the pack off my shoulders and out from under me. I put it in front of me and crawl forward like a horse following the carriage. I'm worried that if I crawl all the way out of the field, I won't have enough energy to open the bag. Seriously, take the butcher's word for it. This is what heroin can do to you. Blinking is a chore at this point. I managed to pull the bag open and find a bundle of dope. And wouldn't you know it, a rolled up dollar bill. I rip open the bags and pour them onto my copy of On the Road. I know, give me a break. I'm on the road. People who like to pretend to read are impressed by it. 
Sniff. I hope I don't get hit by a fucking car. Sniff. Or mangled by a wandering cow or tractor. Sniff. Are there alligators in Oklahoma? I wait. Things slow down. Eventually, the mind comes back to port. The bug racket is harmony. The mosquito hordes sparkle in the dark as I become one with the tall grass. My marching heartbeat slows. I pump, it pumps less and less to match the rhythm of the few cars that drive by. I am the faintest bit of this wilderness. I better get up and move before I fall asleep here in the field. I stand. It's a cornfield. And I think I get the story about Lazarus now. He was either a heroin addict and Jesus gave him his fix or a patient nail in the road waiting for something or someone to give him purpose. religion. 
Relief from those hourly clatters and chimes came only in the night. They were for me, however, replaced by a ticking clock, one of chronic insomnia. In the winter, I had two wake-up times. First, I had to rise to see if it had snowed, waking at 4 a.m. I allotted two hours for snow shoveling activity. If I needed more time, which happened more than once, I was out of luck, which is bad when you're the opening technician in the village's only veterinary clinic. The second wake-up time was 6 a.m., a gift from the Wisconsin snow deities, if they had decided to spare me that. If it had snowed, I needed to shovel the driveway so that I could get to work, and I needed to shovel the sidewalk in order to avoid another hefty fine from the village. These activities occurred after the shower in between at least two rounds of much-needed light roast coffee. You know the kind with the most gas. I broke in four shovels that season, and each time I'd stake the rec tool into the snowbank in front of my house, in line with the other gone but not forgotten shovels. To me, they had begun to look like the fence posts, hosting the severed heads of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. I had better choose my reading materials more wisely. I thought, I had better choose my reading materials more wisely. Although the parallel probably, hopefully, ends here, the snow did make me feel as if I might lose my mind. For each broken shovel, I'd offer up a moment of silence. These weren't so much ceremonies or remembrance, rather they were born of utter frustration. Despite not having much of a temper, after having shoveled for an hour in the dark and frigid air, and having to soon head off to work for a ten-hour shift with still frozen feet, the broken shovels made me want to, well, they made me want to break something. Nevertheless, during these moments, I recoup and remind myself that shoveling was good exercise or something. My ex was the one who would own the truck the type of party vehicle that could, you know, handle a front plow. I'd watch my neighbors layer their snow in a tidy corner of each driveway. Of course they had big tired, all-wheel pickup trucks or whatever it is that makes a truck impressive, and on the front they'd mounted plows. Quickly they'd remove the majority of their snow and then clean up the perimeter using handheld shovels with the seeming ease of tying a bow on a holiday gift. I always hoped they'd offer to do a quick pass along my stretch. But never once did it happen. So much for small-town friendliness, I thought. But this wasn't entirely their fault. Before he moved out, my husband hadn't exactly been a beacon of warmth to the neighbors. You know that guy who yelled, Get out of my yard! Yep, that guy, but the early 30s version. Of course, it wasn't entirely his fault that we hadn't bonded with neighbors. Well, I pleaded with him not to cause a scene. I didn't exactly counter his actions by knocking on the neighbor's doors with friendly gestures. I never came up with excuses to say hello, like borrowing sugar or bringing back homemade chocolate chip cookies or whatever it was that I should have done right. Since my husband had moved out, I had to prioritize the numerous chores around the house. The home needed a lot of care, largely because it was old, so old that no one knew exactly when it had been built. The upstairs, which housed all the bedrooms, had no heating system, only square holes covered by antique vents, gravity registers, I believe they were called, that, that allowed the warmer downstairs air to rise more naturally through them. Some days it was as if the Wisconsin winter cackled at the gentleness of the system. The wind would whisper through the leaky wooden walls. 
From its piecemeal structure, it was clear that the home had been built in stages. Perhaps one portion was the original farmhouse, and another a tacked-on living room. Increasingly after moving in, the sliding wooden doors made me think of an old-fashioned in-home funeral hall. Again, I needed to be more mindful about what I was reading. Because it was even colder upstairs, because I was the only one living in a two-story home, I slept in a room on the main floor, the one with the sliding wooden doors, largely because I could. The marriage had been short, only one year together, and another legally while trying to get divorced. What a wild mistake an acquaintance would later tell me. Regardless of its length, the marriage had been difficult for both of us, and it felt good to choose my own bedtimes and bedroom, and to leave books and piles as I pleased, and to do the dishes as loudly as I want, and not to have to tiptoe around another schedule or heart. Anyway, anyway, anyhow, the night that I saw Charlie the dog, I had been lying awake at 2 something a.m., wondering if it would snow sometime over the next couple of hours. My mind had shifted to anesthesia calculations, not exactly counting shit. Despite my degree in the liberal arts, I had since worked to earn my license as a certified veterinary technician. Having never been of the math and science side of the brain, this was a rewarding accomplishment, but sometimes I worried that others would find me out, tell me that I should be writing copy or slinging coffee instead of administering and monitoring anesthesia and the like. My insecurities, however, made me particularly cautious. I told myself this was an asset, that in the end, whatever led me to be so meticulous must have ultimately been positive. Not wanting to go down that obnoxious path in my brain in the middle of the night, the one that thought about work while I should be sleeping, I dragged myself out of my old oak bed to the bathroom, which was just around the corner. It was my fifth, if I empty my bladder, that maybe I'll be able to fall asleep attempt that night. But as soon as my foot crossed the interior threshold of the heavy wooden sliding doors, I saw him. There, in the corner of my living room, appeared to be a scraggly, overweight dash hound mix, one that had arrived to the veterinary clinic just minutes after I had gotten to work the day before. It was Charlie, the dog, from work, in my living room, in the middle of the night, and that was impossible. Not improbable, it was literally impossible that Charlie could be sitting in my living room, or anywhere for that matter. Charlie had been an established patient at the veterinary clinic. He was loyal to his mom, his own, yet loving, almost jovial, each member of the clinic staff. His curiosity was admirable, but no matter how his hair was groomed, it seems as if Within a week, his shaggy bangs would once, once again block his view of the world. Easily distracted by both milk bones and soft treats, Charlie might have been even more food motivated than I am, and this is quite the feat. In fact, the only thing greater than one, his love for his owner, and two, his adoration of food was this, his waistline. That morning, the morning before I saw Charlie, the dog, Charlie in my living room, dog had arrived at the clinic in severe pain. He'd had a bad back for some time by then, and his owner was working toward his shedding a few pounds. Charlie was also on activity restrictions. Nothing too serious, but he wasn't supposed to jump on and off furniture, nor was he to be around the other, much larger dogs. That morning, however, the worst case scenario happened. Charlie had escaped his baby-gated section of the house, 
and in a moment of barks and excitement, he'd been trampled by one of the happy-go-lucky Labrador retrievers who lived beneath the same roof. Charlie's already injured spine was in shambles. Once they arrived at the clinic, we injected high-end doses of synthetic opioids, but nothing touched the piercing pain. The only ones who might have been able to help him were at the veterinary teaching hospital, which was one hour away. It was possible that, for thousands of dollars, for a nerve-related surgery, a procedure with a discouragingly low success rate, Charlie's spine might have just maybe healed. Like many who lived in that small town within which I worked, the pet owner had very little money. Out of compassion, the woman elected to put Charlie to rest. I was that technician, the one who cried at every euthanasia. A few owners were annoyed at my unprofessionalism. More took comfort in the company of another's tears, and many couldn't care less either way. Regardless, I couldn't help it. The tears were visceral, involuntary. Sometimes I could wait until after I'd left the room, but no matter what, they'd always come. Charlie's passing, however, landed in my heart in an even more trying way. This is because I thought that maybe, just maybe, I could be the one to save him. I could drive the dog into the city, I thought, and put the surgery fees on my own credit card. I just might have enough room. Really, though, decision wasn't mine to make, or was it? I, I still don't know. There's something that's been on my mind over the past few years. I've talked to family members at holidays, friends on nights out, and colleagues at writing events about something I could only call the moment, or perhaps the moment of no return. It seems that when it comes right down to it, everything in life is about a single thing, an action, a phrase, a decision, or lack thereof. Or maybe we don't even know what it is, but it punches us in the gut. It's not always something like love at first sight. No. Oftentimes, moments mark an end. Sometimes, moment is sudden. When it comes to relationships, it, it sometimes occurs long before the breakup. One friend told me that, for her, she knew it was over when she was quietly, cheerfully, singing to herself on a long flight home from a friend's wedding. And her boyfriend asked her, albeit nicely, to stop. She broke into tears. Another friend admitted that he knew it was over when his boyfriend wore a pair of shoes that he just couldn't stand. Surely this moment was symptomatic of something greater, my friend admits. And the significant other never knew. In fact, they stayed together for another two years. Because who breaks up over shoes? Those are my friend's words, not mine. What was the moment of no return for my marriage? Well, I'm not so sure that I know anymore. Or maybe even know, or maybe even now, five years later, I just don't want to admit it, not even to myself. This is because it might have been the very moment that he popped the question at an Italian restaurant with a beautiful blue ring. My then boyfriend asked me to marry him. I said, yes, of course. But a week later, I mustered the courage to ask, why blue? These words climbed from my throat. Because blue is your favorite color, silly. This is what I had hoped to keep, what I had heard in my head as I practiced asking him that question again and again. Instead, however, without looking at me, my new fiance haphazardly replied with something like this. Because it's blue, it matches your eyes. Here's the thing, though. My eyes are hazel. Maybe green. My response? I didn't say a word. I didn't know. <coughs> Here's a moment, though 
one about which I'm much more certain. The beginning of the end of my career at a veterinary, as a veterinary technician was the moment that I saw Charlie the dog sitting in my living room, seemingly alive, on a dark winter night. I knew that the quirky and lovable pooch, the kind soul whose pain we had taken away earlier that day, whose heart had been silent when I placed my stethoscope against his chest, could not actually be there looking at me. However, I also know that I saw him there in my house that night. He seemed okay, comfortable, actually, and I was not afraid. The entire exchange felt surprisingly matter-of-fact. He looked at me, I looked at him. I went to the bathroom, not even closing the door. When I came back out, he was gone. But I knew that my days in veterinary medicine were numbered. There's something about seeing a dead dog that changed the person. Could I have saved Charlie? What about my marriage? That night after I saw Charlie, I looked out the window at my broken shovels, whose own splintered spines reached toward the sky. And I remembered that I was the one who broke them. Nevertheless, that night, the snow deities took pity on me, and they let me sleep that extra two hours. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.